But right now, church, will you help me welcome our senior pastor, Chuck Boer. Welcome, welcome, welcome. Welcome to everybody in the building. Welcome to everybody who's online. By the way, I'm so excited. We're moving quickly towards that 500 number to sponsor children. And I hope that you'll be a part of that. I do need to give you a heads up. When you text sponsor, it's spelled S-P-O-N-S-O-R. <laughs> you know why? A lot, I'm not going to tell you the wrong spelling. A lot of you don't know how to spell it. So <laughs> praise God you want to sponsor O-R, a child. Uh, but text S-P-O-N-S-O-R. Okay, make sure you do that. Uh, also, starting next week, we begin uh, Boldly Blessed, where we ask everybody to give $1 more per person per week than you normally give, and then we're going to change somebody's life. But here's what we need you to do right now. Nominate somebody. If you know of someone who's in need, we can't promise we'll meet every need, but we'll pray about it. We'll look into it. So if you know somebody, whether they're in the church, not in the church, in the area, not in the area, you just know there's a real need out there, then let us know about it. And then we're going to pray and see if that's one of the people or one or more than one, we could change their life. So go to crossroadschurch.family and you could click nominate boldly bless. And, and let's do that together as a church family. Next week we start. Next week we start. Uh, Tracy's right here and Tracy's heading that up for us all the time. And I love that she gets to do that. But we are beginning a brand new series today. And it's how to live a life of purpose. How to live a life of purpose. And I want to tell you that I hope this is so meaningful to you. But we're going to learn how to live a life of purpose from the one who lived a life of amazing purpose, Jesus. Obviously, we're going to think about Jesus. So let's pray. I pray, Lord Jesus, right now. That this today and every week, all the way through Easter, that we get to know you better, we get closer to you, and we'd live better lives because of you. More effective lives, more meaningful life, the life we're meant to live. And I pray right now that this beginning of this series will build in such a way that when we get to see the cross so clearly, that it will move us to the core of our being. And Jesus, I pray this in your name. Amen. If I were to ask you this question, how do you live a life of purpose? Let me tell you a very simple part of that answer. You have to know your purpose before you can live your purpose. Doesn't that make sense? I know some of you are going, okay, that, that boy, he's a rocket scientist. No. You have to know your purpose before you're going to live the purpose. But you ready for this? God, on purpose, created you with a purpose for a purpose. You're not an accident. No matter how many times your mom and dad told you you were. You are not an accident. God created you on purpose, with a purpose, for a purpose. And he wants you to live your purpose. And and that's the great, great thing. But now, how do we unveil that? How do we unpack that? We're going to be seeing how Jesus was a person on purpose, with a purpose, for a purpose. He didn't come by accident either. Matter of fact, before the very foundations of the world were laid. God had a purpose for Jesus coming. He on purpose was here, living his life with such focused, amazing purpose. And I want you to see that, and then I want you to understand that's our great calling, is to be like that. But part of how we see that in Jesus is he had a must, a must. What is a must? M-U-S-T. A must is something so all-consuming, there's nothing else you can do. 
It determines everything either in the moment and then hopefully we have an overarching must for our life. So if I ask you, have you ever had a must moment, uh, an M-U-S-T moment? Um, I had one not that long ago. Uh, Pam and I had one of our schnauzers, uh, we have two miniature schnauzers, attacked by coyotes and they kept coming back and kept coming back. She ended up surviving. So then what happened is we began to research how to, to be able to drive them away. So we tried cowbells. Uh, we tried, uh, I won't go into everything. <laughs> Pellet gun, uh, which is fun. But that, 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 that one's fun, okay? Yeah, yeah. If you're an animal rights lover, I don't care. It's fun. It's just fun. Um, but here's what I want you to know is the best way to drive them away was to get a Saint Merdoodle. Uh, you know why? They're big, they're strong, uh, they're, they're not aggressive, but they are protective. Uh, so uh, that's the idea we had. So we, we, we um, um, short story, we ended up getting one. So I'm out in the front yard area with my two schnauzers and my brand new puppy, uh, Zena. She's like this big at this time. And then the grandkids are out there and we're all playing and we're all having fun. And out of nowhere, out of a bush comes a rabbit. It had been hiding in the bush, and uh, I guess it couldn't stand it anymore. It comes flying out past my, my two, uh, three dogs, but the puppy doesn't even know. She's a puppy. The other two see her, and bam, they're after her. They go through a hedge, a big hedge, after this rabbit, and then we hear the sound of the coyotes. They had been on the other side of the hedge, not close, but on the other side. The rabbit ran, I guess, down towards them. Winston and Pepper ran into this pack of five coyotes. And uh, right away, uh, uh, they go to go after Pepper. Well, Winston's done with this. So he decides he's going to fight five coyotes. Pepper gets away. I I run through the hedge. Pam, I ran through the hedge, right? Uh, I ran through the hedge. Why? Because I had a must. I had a must. I must get there. I must save these dogs. Then we have uh, the way our house is, we're on a, a dirt hill that's rocky and dirty and not stable. So you can't walk down the hill. But the coyotes are there and Winston's there. And I had to get there. So what did I do? I must get there. So I jump in the air, land on, and... <laughs> I go sliding down the hill. And that's all I could think of in the moment. Not am I going to be okay. Not is it going to hurt. I just, I had two thoughts in my mind. One, save Winston. The other, beat the crud out of those coyotes. <laughs> I'm coming fast. Of course, they see me and they freak out and take off. And then I heat Winston keeps going after him. So he's not a rocket scientist either. So, but I finally get to him. And he ends up being okay. He ends up being okay. Uh, but it was a must moment. I didn't think about the pain that I'd experienced going down the hill. I didn't think about the fact I could hurt myself. Matter of fact, I would say the majority of you, you would have done the same thing, right? Uh, and, and so it wasn't till it was all over that Pam looked at me and said, are you okay? And I went, oh, I don't know. <laughs> it was all consuming. See, we all have moments that have a must to it. Uh, it might be for some of you, you've got a class project you must finish. So people go, do you want to go out Friday? No, I'm going to finish. Some of you need to understand there is a must. You should stay and do the project. Maybe it's a, 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 something you're doing at work and you must nail it. If not, people will lose their jobs, including you. 
Uh, For a woman, I think this would identify, when your water breaks, you must get to the hospital or your husband's going to deliver the baby. And that doesn't sound good. See, we all have moments like that that come in our lives. And we need to understand that Jesus lived that way. He had an all-consuming must, M-U-S-T. And here's what's so interesting about it. Every, every step Jesus took uh, was because of the must. Every prayer Jesus prayed was about the must. Every miracle Jesus did was about the must. Every word Jesus said was driven, was driven by that must. And it compelled him towards the fulfillment of the must. Something he must do. Something he must accomplish. And and while all the Gospels talk about this, one brings it out more clearly than any other. It's the Gospel of Luke. See, I think this is so interesting too when you understand that. So get ready. I'm gonna, I'm gonna tell you something I get super excited about. You decided if you do. See, every one of the Gospels and every book of the Bible were written by people inspired by God to write them. But, and but, God gave them an ability to do so with their own personality. So it's all God-given, God-driven, but in, within studying the Bible, that's what I get so even, I get really intrigued by this, how one author might bring something out differently than another based on their personality and life experience. Well, Luke was that way. See, Luke was a physician. Luke was a scientist. And, and so that's why he brings out the must more clearly than anybody else. Because he was a person of exactness, a person who went underneath what was going on. See, as a doctor, you know there's a symptom, and a symptom is what? It's a symptom of something underneath. Would you agree with that? And so he was trained to look for the underneath. And so we see that about him. By the way, in the book of Colossians, we're told something about Luke that I love. It says, Luke, the beloved physician, not just a a doctor, not just Luke the physician. Did you see this word? People loved him. People loved him. He was that caring doctor. He was the one who, who if you went to see him, he cared about every aspect of who you were. And that's how Jesus, uh, or how Luke felt about Jesus. And so what's interesting is we believe, I believe, that Luke was, was one of the doctors that tried to help the woman who had a 12-year hemorrhage issue, a a 12 years of bleeding, a 12-year horrible physical condition. Uh, By the way, it's interesting. When Mark talks about her, it says this. It says in Mark, and a woman who had a hemorrhage for 12 years and had endured much at the hands of many physicians and had spent all that she had and was not helped at all, but rather had grown worse. By the way, I think this is interesting. Mark is the gospel according to Peter. Peter told Mark what to write. And Peter said, you know, those doctors were making her life miserable. They were ripping her off and they were taking all her money. That's Peter. How did Luke talk about this? Luke says this. Luke says that a woman who had a hemorrhage for 12 years and could not be healed by anyone. I want to tell you what I think he was saying. He was saying, we tried. I tried. And no one could help her until she went to Jesus and he did it. Jesus did it. He did what none of us could do. And so Luke brings that out being a doctor. Then I also believe this. Luke was one of the two people walking on the road of Emmaus. Now what is the road of Emmaus? Jesus had died on the cross. 
And when he died, all hope was lost. Everything they thought that had meaning didn't. They felt like instead of victory, they were in the worst defeat they can imagine. And worst of all, most of all, Luke being a doctor saw and knew the agony how Jesus died. He described things in the death of Jesus that was from a medical standpoint, uh, focusing in on the pain. And the fact that there was no doubt beyond a shadow of a doubt he died. Luke brings out that when the spear went in, water and blood came out. Which talked about this fact his heart burst. And now Luke and another man are walking on the road to Emmaus. Their hearts are broken and Jesus appears. He's risen from the dead. But they don't recognize him and they don't know it. And, And so what happens is Jesus says, what are you talking about? And they look at him and they say, what do you mean what are we talking about? Are you the only one who's been around Jerusalem and not known what happened to Jesus? To Jesus, the Nazarene? And then the words come. We hoped. We hoped he'd be the consolation of Israel. In other words, that was our greatest hope and it didn't happen. It can't happen now. And Jesus looks at Luke and whoever else he's with and he says these words. He says, and Jesus said to them, oh, foolish men and slow of heart to believe in all that the prophets have spoken. Uh, don't, don't forget that part. That's really important. Was it not, and do you see this word? necessary. Now we're going to get to the must in a minute, but this is a reference to the must. And this is a moment where Luke says, I believe Luke says, Jesus looked at me and said, wasn't it necessary? Did you miss this must? Did you miss the purpose? Wasn't it necessary for the Christ to suffer these things and to enter into his glory? And then beginning with Moses and with all the prophets, Jesus explained to them the things concerning himself in all the scriptures. So I I believe with all my heart, by the way, that that was Luke in that moment. And Jesus was sharing with him and talking with him about what was going on so he would be aware of it. So Luke, Luke was the one who did that. Uh, By the way, uh, it's interesting that Luke, uh, this is one reason I believe it was Luke. He talks about the internal reaction they felt when Jesus was speaking. If you could hear him. Now we hear him in our mind. He prompts us in our heart. But if Jesus were to stand and speak with that physical voice, what would happen to you? How would you feel? How would you feel? Uh, For instance, my wife Pam, whenever she talks and whenever she laughs, I feel joy. Right? How would you feel if you heard Jesus? Luke 24 goes on to say this about it. And they said to one another, were not our hearts burning within us while he was speaking to us on the road, while he was explaining the scriptures to us? I hope that uh, my preaching is helpful to you. But if Jesus walked out and began to talk, you'd go, ooh, yeah, they would get you. You know, isn't that kind of cool to know? Okay, am I the only one? I just get so excited about that. And, uh, and it says, you know what? Luke goes, man, my heart was burning inside. I was on fire as he talked. And you know what? That's who Jesus was. And that's how he experienced him. So now again, why am I telling you all this? I want you to understand Luke's perspective on the must on the must. So Luke begins the, the gospel of Luke telling us the kind of things he wants to accomplish. And notice what he says in Luke 1. It says, inasmuch as many have undertaken to compile an account of these things accomplished among us. In other words, he's talking about Jesus. He goes, a lot of people have been writing about Jesus, talking about Jesus, sharing about Jesus. He said this, just as they were handed down to us by those who from the beginning were eyewitnesses and servants of the word, it goes, it seemed fitting to me as well. And notice what Luke says. I talked to eyewitnesses. I investigated everything carefully. 
I, he goes, as a scientist, as a doctor, I investigated everything about Jesus carefully, going to eyewitnesses from the beginning to write out for you in consecutive order. Now, by the way, let me pause, parentheses moment. Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John are all important, but Luke's, Luke is important because he says, I did it chronologically. So, you know, sometimes Matthew's not chronological because he had a different purpose. Uh, John certainly isn't chronological. He had a different purpose. Uh, Luke said, I, I wanted it in order, investigated carefully. And he said, I did it in consecutive order. Most excellent Theophilus. This is who he's written the gospel to or for. And he says, so that you may know the exact truth about the things you've been taught. So he said, I want you to know the exact truth. And part of that exact truth is why he brings out more clearly than any of the other gospels, the M-U-S-T, the must, the must, the must. So what is the must? What is the must? Well, in Luke chapter nine, verse 22, we get it. Now get ready for it. It's the big must. It says, saying the son of man must suffer many things and be rejected by the elders and the chief priests and the scribes and be killed. And be raised up from the dead on the third day. To be raised up on the third day. But the Son of Man must. The Son of Man must. This is his big must. And he said, that's what drives my life. That's what causes me to speak the way I speak and do the things I do. Jesus' must is that he had to be rejected. He had to be killed. He had to suffer for you and for me. So in the book of Luke... Nine chapters are pointing toward the must, but 15 chapters are about the fulfillment of the must. So when you study Luke, you begin to see that. And so I want you to think about that and think about what this meant. The must, by the way, was the goal of Jesus's life. So in Luke 13, 32, it says this. It says, when Jesus told Herod, I was told that Herod wanted to kill him. So they come to Jesus and say, Herod wants to kill you. You need to get out of here. But Jesus had a must, so he couldn't get out of there. He had a must that was all-consuming. And so what does Jesus say? He says, and he said to them, go and tell that fox, behold, I cast out demons and perform cures today and tomorrow. And the third day I reach my goal. See, Jesus had such a must, an M-U-S-T, that he had to suffer, that he had to die that he had to rise again from the dead, that he said, I know the day, I know the hour, I know the moment to the minute of where I need to be so this can be fulfilled. And nothing's gonna stop me. Politicians can't stop me. Enemies can't stop me. Circumstances can't stop me. Nothing will stop me. Why? Because I must fulfill my goal. I must fulfill my goal. Now again, let me stop and say, why is that important to you? Why is that important to me? Because if you're a follower of Christ, and we're going to talk about this over and over, if you really truly are a follower of Christ, there is one overriding thing that should be true of you and of me, and that's that you want to be like Jesus. Now, I want to say where I get concerned, yeah, yeah praise God for that. As, as a pastor, as your pastor, I get concerned when your goals are anything but that. You know, when you, when you start to live for other things, because you're missing the biggest point. In Romans 8, it says you're predestined to be conformed to the image of his son. That, that God's great desire is that you would be conformed to the image of Jesus. And if you're conformed to the image of Jesus, you have a M-U-S-T. 
You live your life with passion. See, that's why I know it's me. And okay, I'm just going to get it out there. It's me. When I walk up to somebody and say, how you doing? And they go, okay. I'm like, that's bad. Because if you're living your must, you're not okay. You're on purpose. You're on point. You have passion. You get up in the morning going, today is going to matter. Tomorrow's going to be better. See, that's how we should be living, right? Not, not just kind of meandering through life. And, and nothing will dissuade you from your must and your purpose you're created for if you know it and if you're empowered by the Holy Spirit. So Jesus lived that way and Jesus had that. And then he said, you know what? That should be true of you too. Matthew, it says this in Matthew. Jesus said, it is enough for the disciple that he become like his teacher and the slave like his master. I, uh, if you are around me very much, and I promise you people who are around me will tell you this. I talk about this one all the time. It is enough. It's enough. You know what? I, I, Pam and I want to try to get a new house, but if we get it or don't get it, that doesn't matter. You know why? It's enough that we're like Jesus. You know what? Uh, there's some things that happened in life a couple years ago that were not what I wanted to happen, but that's okay. Why? Because it's enough that we're like Jesus. I right now have more than enough because of Jesus. And you know what? And you can too and should. It is enough. It is enough that you're like him. And so if you're like him, then what happens? You have a must. Uh, and we're going to get to your must more next week. But I want to get to Jesus' must right now. I want us to tune into that. I want you to think about it. What was his must? What was that overriding passion? What was that compelling vision? Uh, that he lived for and moved towards all the time. Well, I want you to know it's you. It's you. He loves you. He cared about you. When he died on the cross, he knew you by name. He pointed to you. When he said, Father, forgive them, he didn't mean just the people at the cross. He meant you. And he had to Suffer and die on the cross. Why? Because he loved you more than you know. And so that was his must. That's what drove him. That's all he could think about. And so we know Jesus was that way. We love that Jesus was that way. Um, a, little, a few years back, we had a, a person in our church whose kidneys were failing. And uh, a, a college-age girl who knew him but didn't know him well she all of a sudden thought, I want to give him my kidney. Now, the odds, statistically, is that wouldn't work out. But she prayed that they would. And she had this all-consuming passion to somehow give a kidney to a person she didn't know that well. She prayed about it. She, she researched it. She went and started being tested. And they told her, it's probably not going to match. And here's the wild thing, it matched. It matched. And, but, but as she was getting the test, she was just thinking, I want this to work. She would lay in bed at night waiting for the test to come back saying that it worked. And then when she found out she matched, guess what they told her? They told her, well, you got to go through more tests. And she's like, no, I got, I'm a, I, she wants to do this. And so every time a test was coming, that's all she could think about. So I want this to work. That's all she could pray about. Whenever I talked to her, she brought it up again and brought it up again. Why? Because she had an all-consuming passion to actually be willing to give her kidney to him so he could live. So he could live. You know what's so sad about it? At the very last, they said, no, you're not allowed to do it. And they wouldn't let her do it. She was devastated. 
why she cared that much. Now, why am I bringing that up? You have a problem called sin. You're the only one. No, I'm kidding. <laughs> okay, come on. That was funny. You've got a problem called sin. You've got a problem called sin. And sin brings the wrath of God and deserves condemnation to hell. Now, a lot of times we act like, no, it's just sin. Well, no, it's not just sin. It's horrible that, that you have some of the things true of you you do and have done some of the things you've done. And so what we need to understand, we've all sinned. Romans chapter eight verse, or chapter three, verse 23 says, for all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. In other words, there's a big chasm between us and God. There's a separation between us and God. It says though, but being justified is a gift by his grace through the redemption, which is in Christ Jesus, whom God displayed publicly as a propitiation. Look at that word propitiation. In his blood through faith. This was to demonstrate his righteousness because in the forbearance of God, he passed over sins previously committed. Now, I wanted you to see that word propitiation. What does that word mean, propitiation? Uh, it's a very interesting word. It means the turning away of anger by offering a gift and the act of regaining favor. Jesus knew that God was angry about, with us over our sins, and he was angry with us. And Jesus said, but I'll offer myself, my body and my blood in their place, Father, if, if they can regain favor with you. I'll die for them. And I'll die a horrible death for them. That's the propitiation. That's what he was doing. That's what he did. That was his must. You see, we needed that. We needed it because outside of Jesus doing that, then we would not be freed from our sins. And we all have sins. You have sins that are called sins of commission. Uh, and that's the actions you have taken. That's the times your motives, you know your motives are wrong, but you operate on them anyway. That's the time that your thoughts are horrible and you're committing sin in your mind in a horrible, horrible way. By the way, I say this all the time, that when the Bible says none are good, no, not one, and we'll look at that passage in a moment, the only reason any of us appear good is because people don't know what you're thinking. If someone knew what you were thinking, would they think you're a good person? No, no. Driving down the 91 freeway, every car around you knows what you're thinking. <laughs> or they're gonna go, oh, they're Saint so-and-so. Nope. By the way, parents, if your kids knew what you were thinking sometimes. How many, how many parents here go, man, my kids, they bring out the evil in me, you know? By the way, because the evil's there. It's those words you've said that were mean and cruel. It's the lies you've told. And uh, the Bible tells us that because of that, not one person's good. Revelation 3 verse, or Romans 3 verse 10 says, As it is written, there is none righteous, not even one. There's none who understands. There's none who seeks for God. All have turned aside together. They have become useless. By the way, one reason people are useless is they're not living out their purpose. Uh, they're not living out their purpose. It says, there's none who does good. There's not even one. And then it says, uh, it describes all the ways we're not good. Their throat's an open grave. Why? We say 
horrible things, mean things, cruel things. With their tongues, they keep deceiving. Everybody who's in this room, everybody who's online, we've all lied. In the book of Zechariah, it says that everybody's lied. Everybody's lied at some point. So you know what that means? That means we're all liars. How many lies do you have to tell to be a liar? How many? Anybody here only do one? Okay, you're a liar. You know, and uh, it says the poison of asps is under their lips. In other words, we can, we can po- hit strike and, and sink venom into people, into situations. Whose mouth is full of cursing and bitterness. Their feet are swift to shed blood. Destruction and misery are in their past. And the path of peace they have not known. And this is an interesting one. There's no fear of God before their eyes. I think in the United States church, there's a a huge void because we don't have any fear of the Lord. We just don't fear God. Not only in the church in the United States, but in the church. And if you ask me this question, well, what does it mean to fear God? Then you don't fear God, right? If you have to ask that question, then you don't fear the Lord. And, and I want to tell you that that's right here. He says, there is no fear of God. And, and there's a shock to that. How could we not have a healthy fear of the Lord our God? By the way, the one reason I love biblical prophecy is whenever we do prophecy, all of a sudden you start understanding fear. The fear of the Lord, right? Because you know what? God's going to judge this world. As a matter of fact, God is in the midst of judging this world. And uh, you know what we need to understand in that moment is we need to have a healthy fear of God. Um, and and we, we seem like we do everything we can to avoid that. Uh, you know, we want to go to churches where everybody talks about how good you are and how nice you are and how can I meet your needs. We're not here to meet your needs. We're here to, to have you meet what God's called for you to do in your life. That's what we're doing. And so what we need to understand is it says there's no fear of God. So we all have these sins of commission, words we've said, things we've done, lies we've told. But we also have sins of omission. Pastor Craig brought this out so good in James 4, 17, where it says this. Remember, it is a sin to know what you ought to do and then not do it. It's a sin to know what you ought to do and then not do it. Uh, let me get kind of, let me get practical. Get ready. We're asking for all this church to sponsor 500 children. If you know you should do it and you don't, that's sin. You, you got the 38 bucks. You might have to not get Starbucks so a child can have food and clothes and Jesus taught to them. And you go, nah, I'd rather have Starbucks. That, that's sin. You know. You know you should. And you don't do it. Uh, you know you should listen to your child talk on and on and on and on. Because that moment's going to pass. I promise you, at my age, I can tell you, parents, you will look back and wish you'd listen better. You really will. You'll treasure that. Uh, you know you should serve your spouse. You know you should work hard. You know you should, and, and you don't do it. And the Lord says, you know what? That, that's sin. That's sin. 
And God wants you to be aware of that. And he wants you to not be that way because sin brings death. In Romans 6.23, it says this. It says, for the wages of sin is death, but the free gift of God is eternal life in Christ Jesus. So sin brings death, but also sin brings something else that brings wrath. Uh, Romans 1 verse 18 says this. For the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness. Every time we're ungodly, that means not loving, not caring, not kind, not patient. And all unrighteousness of men who suppress the truth and are righteous every time we don't do the right thing because that which is known about God is evident within them. For God made it evident to them. And what that's saying is God put, gave you this gift called a conscience. And every time your conscience tells you, oh, you shouldn't have done that, that's God saying to you, that's sin. That's sin. And it brings the wrath of God. Now, while God is loving, God is also angry. And he looks at the world today, and he looks at what's going on in the world today, and the waste that's happening. And by the way, in us, we need something to occur so we can appease the wrath of God. But we don't have the ability to do it. So Jesus came to be our propitiation, and to do it. And so he looked around, and he said, I must. I must suffer. I must be rejected. I must die and I must rise again. I must go through all that pain. And then he, he said, because you have to have this, there's no other way. Interestingly, the emotion Jesus had about that, Hebrews chapter 12, verse one says this, therefore, since we have so great a cloud of witnesses surrounding us, let us lay aside every encumbrance and this sin which so easily entangles us and let us run with endurance the race that is set before us. Now, how do we live our life? How do we run our race? That's what he's talking about. How do you run your race? Fixing our eyes on Jesus, the author and perfecter of our faith. Look at this who for the joy set before him endured the cross, despising the shame, and has sat down at the right hand of the throne of God. For consider him, consider Jesus, who has endured such hostility by sinners against himself so that you will not grow weary and lose heart. But look at this. He, for the joy set before him, endured the cross. His must is I have to be Jerusalem on a certain day, a certain time, a certain hour so I can be rejected, so I can suffer, so I could go through incredible pain and die the most painful death possible on a cross. Why? Because there's so much joy in what comes from that happening. And the joy is you. The joy is you. Yeah, isn't that a praise? In that moment, in that excruciating pain, in the midst of the suffering, it's you. It's you. Uh, in some ways, I think it is like a, a, a woman who's in labor and she's going through an incredible pain in delivering her child, but there's so much joy that she's going to hold her baby, right? And Jesus loves you so much. There was so much joy when you would say yes to him. So much joy that you would open your heart to him. So much joy you'd commit your life to him. Why? Because Jesus loves you more than you know. And you were his must. You are his must. And you matter that much. Right now, most of you know that. Right now, most of you are living that. 
But some right now you need more than ever to commit your life to Christ. You need to open up your heart to him. You need to be willing to admit you've sinned. And you need to come to the knowledge of the truth that apart from Jesus, you can't be forgiven of that sin. But in Jesus, you can. You've never done anything so bad, anything so wrong that the blood of the cross can't wipe it away. You can't make such a huge mess of your life that Jesus can't fix it. You can't ever be in a place where Jesus wouldn't love you. But he has given you a choice. He's given you a calling to be able to say yes to him or not. So right now, I'm going to ask you, are you ready to truly commit your life to Christ? Are you ready to truly open up your heart to him? Knowing that he died for you. Knowing that he lived and died for you. And he couldn't love you more than he does. Maybe today you need to come to Jesus for the first time. Maybe today you need to recommit your life to him. Maybe at one time you did. You were living for the Lord and you've gotten off course. You've you maybe even backslid in a horrible way. Well, I want to tell you this. He would never stop loving you. The Bible teaches, Jesus teaches, that if you'll take one step towards him, he tells an incredible story where he's saying he'll run to you. And he runs coming to love you, coming to care about you. So today, if you're not in a love relationship with Christ and you're not living your life with the must that he's given you, the purpose he has for you, I'm gonna ask you to either commit or recommit your life to Christ. You could do it here, you could do it online, no matter where you are or even when you're watching, this could be your moment. And right now we're gonna pray and I'm gonna ask you, if you're ready to say yes to the Lord, I'm gonna ask you to actually say yes to the Lord in prayer. Let's go to God in prayer. Lord, we know you love us. Oh, we know you love us. And I think about the must that you live by. The must that drove you forward. The must that brought you to be in the city of Jerusalem. On that day, for that hour, to accomplish a propitiation for us. May we right now understand how much you love us. And I pray for anybody right now who needs to open their heart to you or commit their life to you. I pray they will, Lord. I pray right now they will. I pray right now for a man who, who his life is a waste, but he matters more than he knows. And you created him with great purpose and an ability to love in a way he never knew he could. And I pray right now he's going to open his heart to you and commit his life to you. I pray right now for a, a, a son who's an adult son whose parents have always loved him, but he's disappointed them time and time again. And they still love him. And you still love him. And it can all change right now. I pray he's going to call out to you. I pray right now for a person who feels like that they, they've gotten to a place of no return, and yet there is a return. It's only in you. And I pray right now for a woman who's, who this week has been so hard. She feels like nobody cares. And right now, Lord, you're caring, you're loving, and she needs to open up to you so she can feel again. 
So I pray for anybody who needs to commit their life to you or recommit their life to you. I pray for couples to do it. I pray for individuals to do it. I pray for families. Lord, I pray right now, this is your moment. Right now, I'm going to lead a prayer. And if you're ready to say yes to the Lord, if you're ready to open your heart to him, I pray you're going to pray this prayer with me. Say these words. Say, Lord Jesus, I know you love me. And I know you died on the cross for me and you died for my sins. I pray you'll forgive me and cleanse me from all my sin. I pray you'll heal me from hurt and from pain. I pray you'll free me from anything or anyone that's holding me down or holding me back. But most of all, I pray you'll make me yours and I pray you'll make me alive And I pray you'll make me brand new. So I say yes to you. And I say yes to the life you have for me. So take me now and make me yours. In Jesus' name, amen. And amen if you pray that prayer.